You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Hello out there and welcome to another episode of the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I am Jessica O'Reilly, your friendly neighborhood sexologist, and my goal is to provide you with accurate science-based information and insights that will help you to have happier relationships and a more fulfilling sex life, however you define that. And I want you to feel great about yourself, to love your body, to embrace your desires and everything that comes with them. Now, today's show is all about sexual health and it's brought to you by Desire Resorts, one of my favorite places to visit down in Mexico. You can tan nude, meet new exciting people from all over the world, and it's couples only clothing optional. Check them out at Desire Resorts. Now, today I am really thrilled to have Dr. Jessica Shepard with me as a guest. And Dr. Shepard is an obstetrician gynecologist and director of minimally invasive gynecology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She specializes in endometriosis, fibroid, and minimally invasive surgical approaches to gynecological diseases and much, much more. We met about a year and a half ago in Toronto working on an event and she is she's brilliant lovely she's beautiful which doesn't matter but I, I can't not think about that so Jessica Dr. Shepard thank you for being with us absolutely I mean I think we have a lot more in common than that we have same first name we have Jamaican heritage we're Canadian I mean we're both doctors I don't know how much more I can get than that that's awesome yeah. yes and you're a medical doctor so you can answer a ton of questions that I just don't have any background on. So today we're going to be answering questions from my Twitter followers, from some of our listeners about sexual health and sexual challenges. Uh, but before Perfect. we do, Dr. Shepard, uh, I came across an article. <laughs> and of course, it was oh boy. Yeah, it was plastered all over my Facebook. And here's the headline. Vaginas absolutely need sex or they'll waste away study. Oh my gosh. (laughs) My first reaction is one, who wrote that? And two, can I visit them and talk to them about vaginas and just how awesome vaginas are and um, why they really are, you know, in the, the wonderful powerhouse of the body, which is the pelvis. And that is absolutely not true. It's quite, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the opposite, but to say that it would waste away, I think that's, um, for lack of a better term, that's not so nice to say that about the vagina. Um, but there are definitely ways to keep it vibrant, uh, but doesn't necessarily mean if you don't use it that it's going to go away. Right. And I mean, you asked who wrote it. Maybe that, maybe that's the answer in and of itself. This is the New York Post we're talking about. Um, so one of the pieces of the advice I found in the article suggests that if cells don't get enough oxygen, they cannot eliminate waste from the tissue, which can cause inflammation that leads to problems such as vaginal atrophy. And of course, they're connecting this to sex, saying, if you don't have the sex, the vagina is going to run into trouble. So what is the relationship between sex and vaginal health? 
So the relationship really is, for for one, the vagina is very forgiving as far as, you know, what the vagina is able to withstand and withhold. And if you think about it, children come out through the vagina. So I think that um, the vagina is very uh, elastic as far as elasticity. It ha- it's full of connective tissue. Now, we do know that after menopause, it's not so much that the cells... Uh, don't necessarily aren't being used. It's more so that the estrogen that's being released from the ovaries is going to be significantly less. And that's when you see that you'll have that drop. So what happens after that drop in the estrogen is that you'll see is that you'll see that the tissue starts to change. And so when the tissue starts to change, that's when you'll notice that you have a little bit of dryness in the vagina. Sometimes it's not as elastic or flexible as we like to call it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't use it. So that's a big difference. Um, We do have lots of ways to help women um, kind of use that, their vagina and help it out a little bit after menopause and whether that's with lubrication, I'm a big advocate of lubrication, whether that's hormone replacement therapy to give you back that estrogen, obviously you need to talk to your doctor about that before you would choose that one, and also pelvic physical therapy. Exercise is also great. Diet is a big part of how your body responds internally. Um, and so there are so many things and ways that we can change our lifestyle and medications that we may want to take that can help the vagina and not let it waste away because it's not going to waste away. I, I know this is like the powerhouse of our body. There's, I, I can't yes. imagine another organ in any gender's body that can do what the vagina does. <laughs> in terms I mean, of- it's very, it's very multifaceted. It does so many things. <laughs> and so there's nothing we can do sexually that will, that will make our vagina waste away. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Um, definitely. I, you know, I have people who think that, again, when we're talking mainly about penis size uh, for penile vaginal intercourse is that sometimes it can be too big and you know traumatize the vagina that usually comes with the degree of um, intensity of how you have sexual intercourse so sometimes women can you know present to the office and they might have a laceration because they had a little bit of rougher sex but you know to say that the vagina is going to completely stretch out due to penis size um, typically we don't see that happen the vagina is very forgiving if you think about childbirth after a baby passes through that vaginal canal and that birth canal it really does go back down to the initial size maybe not exactly but very close so again the vagina is very forgiving it's very powerful and um, I encourage women also to not feel after menopause that they can't use it. I think sometimes there is a uh, an idea that after menopause you shouldn't have any, having sex anymore and you can't have sex anymore, but it's quite the opposite. We want you to be very sexually happy and have you know adequate and very good sexual health even into your older years. Right, and that so that could mean not having sex, or that could mean having sex every single day. And either way, you're exactly. vagina. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, you mentioned diet, and that's a really interesting. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about what we should be eating, what we shouldn't be eating? Because I don't think people associate what they eat with vaginal health. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what we put in our bodies is what we put out. And so what we have shown in studies is that a diet that is very highly inflammatory, and so that's going to be foods that are going to be processed, um, your fast foods, your foods with a lot of uh, sodium preservatives, 
and also foods that um, have white flour, white sugar, um, and also those are going to promote a lot of inflammation in the body. And so when you have inflammation inside the body, again, that's going to affect, you know, your increase in vaginal infections, such as yeast infections, bacterial vaginosis. And so a lot of that sometimes relates to how you treat your body inside is what it's going to put out. And so I have had women who come with, whether it's chronic yeast infections or chronic bacterial vaginosis infections, we can treat it with medication, but some women actually can get it what we call recurrently. And that means just over and over and over again. And a lot of these patients that I see, I'm like, you know, let's work on your diet and see if we can change that and change some of the outcome that we have. And many of them come back and say, you know what, this is great. I started, you know, decreasing all those white flour, white sugar processed foods in my diet, maybe taking some more probiotics. Uh, Kefir is also um, a good food source that can decrease inflammation in the body. And they do see changes. So lifestyle has a lot to do with vaginal health. Okay, excellent. All right, well, I have some questions. Now that I have you here, I have some questions from some of my my followers that I'd love to ask you. So I'm going to start with with a tough one. I mean, this one says, we have some bad news. My wife was diagnosed with cancer, throat cancer. She's 60. She's never smoked. She's very fit and beautiful. We've had a great sex life over the years. And the doctor says that the cause of this throat cancer could possibly be HPV. Um, I remember, and he goes on to reference Michael Douglas talking about this and that the doctor sees more and more of this now. How prevalent is it? Um, Do we know that it is HPV from oral sex? And is is my sex life changed forever? What can we do? That's a great question. I'm so sorry to hear um, of that diagnosis, but I definitely think that even patients who have a cancer diagnosis, one, can still partake in sexual intercourse um, and activity and have very healthy uh, sexual relationships. Now, when we talk about throat cancer specifically for this question, HPV, what we do know is that HPV in general, the virus, is a leading cause of cancer. And so we have started to see an increase in, not necessarily significantly, in oropharyngeal uh, cancers, which would include uh, throat cancer. And now we are seeing that HPV can be a cause of those cancers. Um, now, if that's directly related to oral sex um, and oral intercourse as far as contracting the HPV virus, yes, there is an association with, you know, that's how the HPV virus would be transmitted in some of those cases. But we see this also in cervical cancer. Uh, cervical cancer HPV is the leading cause of cervical cancer, which is why we do the pap smear for screening, and also anal uh, cancer as well. So for um, men who have sex with men, you will see, or women who have uh, anal sex, who partake in anal sex, also we have noted that anal sex, HPV, would be the leading cause. So it's more so that the virus is um, very carcinogenic and can cause these types of cancers. So again, with any penetration in oral, anal, or vaginal penile, you also will see those types of cancers being caused by HPV as well. Do we have any screening for throat cancer? I remember talking to a dental hygienist student who said they were even being, being trained to look for symptoms in, in the thro- back, of the thro- back of the mouth, the throat. 
So there are really good ways to look for the throat cancer. Um, you know, for those students who look for it for symptoms, maybe people come in with complaints. Obviously, there are ways that we can look for it. But if there's actual screening tests, there's not right now. Um, and, you know, what we do know is it can come through the, you can do HPV, what we call typing, co-testing with the pap smear. But we haven't really delegated one for the throat as of yet. So that's obviously, as we start to see more numbers increase, then we'll start to, I'm sure that we'll start to work on a way to screen for that. And so what are doctors doing? Are they, when they look in our throats, would they be looking for symptoms of, of, I don't know. Well, they'd be, yeah, they would be looking for signs. Typically, if a patient has a complaint or if a patient states um, that they uh, partake primarily in oral sex, that may be a good reason to look for any signs. But usually it will be based on symptoms. Um, That's not a, a, routine annual screening that we do um, to look for is to look for throat cancer for someone who says that they do partake in oral intercourse and sex. Um, but there are ways that if someone comes in with a specific complaint, then yeah, that's something that we would definitely ask them if they partake in and then start to look for possible signs and symptoms uh, that may correlate um, the anal, the, sorry, the oral sex to possible throat cancer. Okay. And uh, asking if, is, is our sex life changed forever? Can they still have oral sex? Do you have any thoughts on that? So when we think about viruses, they have multiple strains. And when we say strains, it's pretty much just same virus, very different types. So they, for lack of a better term, they wear different coats. So they have different coatings, same kind of person. So again, we have to know what the particular type or strain of HPV it was that that patient may have been exposed to. But typically when someone has uh, a cancer, usually that means they've already had some of the more what we call carcinogenic uh, types of HPV and been exposed to that, obviously because now it's progressed into a cancer. So with that being said, it does not mean that they cannot have oral sex, but it may um, it may be a, a good time to think about if you want to, again, protect yourself and wear condoms uh, for that type of sex because you don't want to increase your, your risk of being exposed to other strains of the HPV virus. Right. So it's, it's a risk for her as well. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I mean, this is something we don't talk about enough and or even when we do talk about it, people don't tend to want to use condoms and other barrier methods for oral sex. And uh, with, I, I don't know if you're seeing a rise in throat cancers as this doctor reports via his, his patient here, but do you think as we see an increase in throat cancers related to HPV, people will consider more seriously using condoms for oral sex? You know, I think that's definitely uh, something that will, would be more of a public health issue in the sense that it, it requires more education um, from from the public health standpoint, that if we do start to see a significant rise in throat cancers, then we as a medical community need to to take that responsibility to then educate, and also uh, for ways in the in the private sector to find ways that are creative to pr- provide barrier methods uh, that people again would want to use. So it's it's kind of combined. Uh, if we see an increase in those numbers of throat cancer, and knowing that it's HPV related. We need to start educating. We need to start opening the conversation and the dialogue with patients so that they know that this is a potential risk that they take when they partake in oral sex. 
And so with that risk, also, what are ways that we can decrease those uh, possibilities of transmitting the HPV virus, which would be with really creative ways to uh, come up with barrier methods. So if anyone's listening and is an uh, entrepreneur, that may be something that, you know, we would love to see on the market is something that's for specifically for oral sex and uh, some type of barrier method. Right. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Now I'll, I have some more questions. These ones may be a little bit more straightforward. So this one says, I used to love sex. Uh, this is from a 45-year-old woman, cis woman. I used to love sex, but ever since I lost my job, I find it painful. How do I get my groove back? That's a great question. Um, so what we do know is libido, which is our desire to uh, initiate sexual activity or have sexual fantasy or thoughts, um, can be decreased uh, when you have something significant and traumatic happen in your life, such as loss of a job, a divorce, loss of a loved one. And so with that comes a decrease in the ability to think of things that would be pleasurable, which would fall into the range of sexual intercourse. And so typically what we, we like to recommend to patients when they have some of these issues is to really, again, sit back and think what are the causes that they may have that may have caused this particular uh, decrease in desire. And also, and also when they have, um, thinking about maybe individual therapy, Right. Individual therapy that they can have with a therapist uh, that might help them get to that level where they feel better about themselves, better about their relationships with their partner, and that they won't that they will feel delighted to have sex even in the midst of going through a, tra a traumatic uh, time in their life or something that doesn't make them feel very good about themselves. So it really, it's really multi. Uh, focus when you think of the ways to deal with that. Uh, again, working specifically with the psychotherapy of that individual to get them to a better point where they feel that they can uh, have a desire in sex. Right. And this seems to be common. So they're talking about painful sex starting after some sort of a big life, life shift or traumatic experience. And so the body can respond yeah. psychogenically. Oh, the body. Yeah, the body responds to those things very much so in stressful um, times. You'll see that you'll have different ways and that the muscle uh, is tense, uh, is not relaxed. And when you see that happen, that is, can be directly because when you think about sex, actually, it's very connected to our brain and how we're thinking, where, where our headspace is. And so when someone is significantly uh, down or depressed, have some signs of depression, you know, the, the pelvis is going to know that and it's going to respond accordingly. And so you're going to see a decrease in possibly uh, lubrication, the way that the, the muscles respond to sex. And then you might have some tightening in tense uh, areas or moments that it's not going to respond to the sexual uh, course, as we call it, during sexual intercourse. So again, the muscles can be very tight. Sometimes I send patients who have had a long course of pelvic pain related to some type of uh, issue that's going on in their life to a pelvic physical therapist. I love sending patients to pelvic physical therapists because they work with the patient on their muscles in the pelvis. There's so many muscles in the pelvis and they really pinpoint where those areas are and how they can help that patient get back to more relaxation in the pelvis and having great sex life. Awesome. Yes. Pelvic floor therapists. I think everybody should have access to one. And uh, we are, we're, you, I don't know about you, but I am learning so much from them. And there seems to 
be new information every year because 10 years ago, the prevailing advice was just, hey, do Kegels. And now we know that most of us shouldn't even be doing Kegels. Right. We, I think we have gotten to the point where we overdo them. And then, so we haven't learned how to relax the muscles now. So we're very uh, much building them up, but we're not relaxing them as well. So, yeah. Do you run into that with pap smear exams that uh, you have difficulty with the insertion for some people who are hypertonic or tense down there? Absolutely. We have patients who have had maybe a history of sexual abuse, um, are very uncomfortable with their pelvis in general, and we will definitely see that manifested uh, during the pap smear. Some patients I have to really talk to ahead of time. Uh, before we do the actual speculum exam in the room and then work our way towards that. I find uh, having a discussion before it, letting the patient know exactly what we're doing uh, throughout the exam and having them relax and think of something that um, is not so stressful before we actually insert the speculum. And that's very helpful that we have a conversation about it before and through the whole uh, exam so that they feel comfortable and they don't mind having, you know, the metal speculum or the plastic speculum placed inside, but I do see that quite often, tense vaginal and pelvic muscles during an exam. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, I've got one more quick question. I know that we have to let you go. This person says, I have no problem with sex. I love it, but after sex, my vagina hurts. Why might this be? Is there anything I can do? I'm already using lube. Oh, so, you know, there are multiple reasons why, and the difference is, is it pain or discomfort? Uh, discomfort sometimes can occur after sexual intercourse, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. There are a lot of, uh, during orgasm, again, you have a shift in how your vaginal muscles respond um, to, to that, and you can have some, what we call cramping or tensing of the muscles in that area, and how long does it last? Is it pain or discomfort that lasts for a short period of time or a long period of time? And for women who have a long a period of time where they have pain after intercourse, and that's something that we need to, again, evaluate in the office, possibly with ultrasound, on a bimanual exam, and just getting an idea and appreciation of what might be going on in their vagina. So we have patients who may have endometriosis, uh, which is a, a pelvic pain disorder, and it's estrogen-related, but the full we could actually do a full show on endometriosis. It's so complex, um, but so that could be a cause... Endometriosis yeah. for you. Another time, another time. Yes. <laughs> but in endometriosis, that may, you know, be in the vaginal walls. That's why they may have uh, pain after sex. And some women have what we call vulvodynia. And so that's increased hypersensitivity of the vulva. Um, and that's the outer portion of the vagina. But that too can be affected by, um, by sexual intercourse as well. Okay. Now, I know, I know that you have to, and I really appreciate your time. I have you know, dozens of questions that I would love to have you answer at another time. Having said that, if, if you could just leave people with one piece of information that would improve their, their physical sexual health, is there something you'd like them to know? Yeah, I think that's being empowered by their body and feeling comfortable with themselves. Um, I find that a lot of sexual disorders have to do with, again, overall um, health how they feel about themselves. And when I say health, not necessarily health, you know, is their blood pressure okay? But, you know, overall health, meaning emotional, uh, social, psychosocial health, that also plays a big part into how they respond um, sexually. So much goes into um, sex and sexual health. It's not just 
penis vagina and that's it. There's so much more that goes around that. And I really encourage patients to be willing to talk to their provider about any issues they're having with sex so that they can feel comfortable. Yeah, that's, that's a, a really good point because it can be hard to advocate uh, on your own behalf as a patient. If you're absolutely doctors, you're comfortable talking about this, but some doctors can't even say vagina. You know, I had a doctor who called my vagina my lady parts four, three or four times a few months ago. Oh my goodness! Oh, I so hate hearing that. Yeah, we have to learn to stand up for as patients. So, Doctor Shepard, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'd love to have you back again, uh, definitely to talk about endometriosis and what the best practices are today in 2017, because uh, I'm part of endometriosis group, and I see their stories of of pain and heartache and how it interferes with even their ability to go to work. So that would be a great topic to cover. I think it encompasses so much of pelvic health, but I would love to have a discussion with you on endometriosis. And, you know, I'm part of a lot of support groups as well to help patients. So we can definitely invite them to be part of the conversation and get some uh, Twitter activity during that conversation. Okay, wonderful. Thank you again for being with us. Folks, thanks for tuning in. This is the At Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Follow us. And Dr. Shepard, where can they find you? Oh, they can definitely find me on Twitter at J Shepherd S H E P H E R D underscore M D on Twitter and Jessica Shepherd M D on Instagram and herviewpoint.com for the website. Perfect. We'll make sure we share those links. Thank you all and have a great day. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life, improve your life. Thank you.